You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Bob Roth, the CEO of the David Lynch Foundation, interviews Dr. Tony Nader and asks him how the transcendental meditation technique fights the black plague of the 21st century, stress. Welcome, Dr. Nader. You are a medical doctor, a neuroscientist, a teacher of transcendental meditation, an expert, maybe the foremost scientist of consciousness, uh, modern day, and you administer, help to administer an international organization teaching transcendental meditation in over 100 countries. When you think of yourself, who are you, what are you in all of that? First and foremost. I have learned to think of myself throughout the years as every one of us, as different things. You are a child, you are the son, you are the student, you have a name, you have a nationality, etc. And then you become a profession, you become a doctor, you become this and that, and all the kinds of things that people think they are. And then I have learned that actually what my true reality is, is beyond the changing aspects of outer expressions. Our face changes, our body changes, our molecules in our organs, they're never the same. They are, have a different shapes sometimes, but mostly even if they maintain the shapes, their constituents uh, change. And so we change in every way, and yet we still have that sense of self. So the sense of self remains, and what is myself ultimately, I have learned through the practice of transcendental meditation to find myself in my own awareness and the inner self of pure being as a reality that is beyond the changing field of day-to-day -day life and day-to-day -day expressions. So I have learned to be what I think everyone is, what I know everyone is, a pure state of awareness, a pure state of being. So really, this is how I <laughs> have experienced and known my true self to be. And where did you come to that knowledge? Because I'm not an expert, but I know that the transcendentalist Thoreau and people like him, you know, wrote about that, and Lao Tzu and Plato, and then great religious leaders. They always talked about this sort of the kingdom of heaven is within, or um, be still and know that I am God, or in non-religious ways, great artists and athletes have described the zone where this sort of feeling quiet and settled inside and yet all this massive activity. How, how did you come to this? You, you grew up in Lebanon. Yeah. So tell me your story. Of course, uh, we get knowledge through first our senses. You look around, you see things. You see what is this? They tell you it's called a flower. Your memory records this as a flower. When you see another flower and the third flower, now you know there is a category of things that are flowers. You hear sound, they tell you this is the sound of birds, so you understand, you have a knowledge through 
the senses. You see the sun moving in the sky from east to west and you have that experience, sensory experience, that the earth is flat and there is this big ball of fire that moves around in the, in the sky, and that is really what your first level of knowledge is. And then you are told, um, actually, there is more knowledge than what the senses show us. There is knowledge that comes on the level of the mind, philosophy and thinking and theory about things, there is the knowledge at the level of the intellect where we analyze things. We analyze how is it that the sun moves around the earth and the other planets yet seem to move in a funny way. And then we kind of discover that it's not really the sun moving around the earth, but the intellect and the analysis tells us that it's the earth rotating around its axis that makes the sun move. So even though it's the same sensory experience and on the sensory level it's true knowledge, but only on that level it is true knowledge. On the level of the intellect, it's not so accurate knowledge. The sun actually doesn't move itself around, it's the earth that rotates around the axis. So the intellect starts discovering things, time and space, are they absolute? Are they a reference that is really there? Of course, all our senses and what seems to be our mind and our intellect tell us that time and space are absolute. But with more understanding about life and living and the structure of the laws of nature, we even know that even time and space are not so absolute. So therefore, this is to say there are different levels of knowledge. So when we say, I am the self on an intellectual level, this is one level of realization. But that is, can be controversial. You can have different ideas about what the self is. People have different thoughts, different philosophies, different visions of who we are and what things are. And therefore, intellectually, there is a, also a level of knowledge that is um, challengeable even by, you know, theories and ideas and philosophies and uh, all these kind of extrapolation from the senses to the mind to the intellect. What is really fascinating is that I've discovered there is also a direct way to know the self. A direct way as if it is through the senses, as if it is through the eyes, as if it is through the ears, as if also it is through the intellect and the mind. Yet, instead of being outside, it's a knowledge that is inside. And this technology of consciousness that has been brought out by Maharshi in the world allows the mind to settle down within. You close the eyes and you experience yourself. When we ask somebody, who are you? Then one feels, there is a feeling, that feeling, I am Robert, I am Nancy, I am Jonathan, I am John, I am Jane this sense of feeling and has a name and has a structure and has a reality around it. So it's a direct experience that stays there even while we are changing in so many ways. But there is a way when you close the eyes and allow the mind to settle down and not even ask yourself any intellectual or philosophical question that allows the mind to settle down and settle down and settle down and really go to the true self that we are without it being colored by outer things or outer definitions of 
an individual with a specific role in society, with a specific shape, with a specific name, with a specific race, with a specific nationality. It's just that self that we really are is directly experienced on the level of awareness. And then all these uh, aspects of, if you like, excitations that are interference with what we really are kind of vanish away and one finds oneself in a direct experience of the self. And that is so amazingly fulfilling uh, that it really can remind us of all the great experiences of sages and saints, as you mentioned. So it's a beautiful description, but I'm listening to this at home. I'm taking the time to watch this and I say, that's a beautiful theory. That's a beautiful philosophy, but we live in a scientific age. So how, how, can, how does science weigh in on something like this? How can, can you word that in a way that to a skeptic sitting at home watching this goes, yeah. Experience on that level is obviously what we call subjective. And subjective means it's very personal. It depends on the subject. So how can you verify that the subject is not actually hallucinating? So one wonders, what is the reality of that? And in fact, this is why questions have come up with respect to different beliefs, different ways of looking at the world, different philosophers, different great minds and great thinkers that are very intellectually alive and alert and sharp, yet they have contradictory perception of what reality is. So based on experience, one can say the brain can take you into any trip and you can end up, you know, maybe in the wrong place. So there is a way to verify at least what is the result and the effect of this experience. When you come to subjective things, such as emotions, feelings, love, how can you measure love? How can you say how much somebody is really in love? They can express it to you, they can uh, say what they feel, but it's still very personal, very subjective. Now, the way you can sort through these things is two ways. One is the systematic repeated experiences and whether they are similar. So you see if you have 10 people who have the same experience, if you have 100 people who can get the same experience, that is more reassuring. If you have a million people who have the same experience, it's even more reassuring. So you will know the experience is at least systematically obtainable, it is repeatable, and in that sense, reliable. And that is why this is important. So it's not my personal experience, it's the experience of millions of people who have practiced this technology. But for science, this is not enough because it might be a systematic experience that everybody enjoys it, that's why people do it. But what does it do to you? Is it taking you in the right direction? So that's the second way to, to look at it. And the second way therefore requires, what does it do to you? To the brain. What does it do to the brain? What does it do to the heart? What does it do to the body? What does it do to the skin? What does it do to disease, to abnormalities, etc.? And so the scientific research comes and says, well, there is something there. What does it do to you? It's not just a subjective experience. Does this subjective experience translate into something objective? 
which means we can analyze, we can study, we can compare, and we can see if there is a systematic result that comes out of it. All the scientific research that has been done on this technology, and most of it has been published in peer-reviewed journals, shows that it does actually improve your life. And it improves your life physically, hormones changing in your bloodstream, neurotransmitter changes, electric activity of the brain changes, there is opening of the reserves of the brain. There is also an effect on positive behavior, you know, decrease in smoking, bad habits, uh, helping people who have drugs, who have suffering from addiction to overcome that, people who have asthma, people who have all kinds of diseases, and it also creates rejuvenation in the body. The body gets younger biologically when people practice this technology. So you have something that subjectively is pleasing, but objectively also it is very nourishing to the mind and the body and to behavior and actually to society as a whole. There's a part of the brain uh, called the frontal lobes, um, executive functioning, I understand. And then there's another part of the brain called the amygdala, which is the fear center, fight or flight. They seem to be at odds with each other. And today I read more and more and I know from talking with people that the amygdala, the fear center, seems to have taken over. Could you comment on the effect of transcendental meditation on these parts of the brain? The amygdala and, you know, the frontal part of the brain, we can even divide them into their subspecialties because you have the right side which does something, you have the left side, of the, of the even of the frontal lobes, which is responsible for different things. And you have the amygdala, you have the reward centers and all of that. See, our physiology has been, if you look at it from a creationist perspective or from uh, evolutionary perspective, a Darwinian evolution. It doesn't matter. It comes up to the same thing. We live in environments that are very harsh. And so you have two things. You have the creative reward positive side and you have the protective side. Most of the things we deal with are actually the protective side. So that is why our nervous system has developed to protect us. So, you know, if you are in a dangerous situation, what do you prefer for your system to immediately be set up to protect itself, run, fight or fight in an immediate way, or start thinking about arts and music <laughs> and, and beautiful philosophical thing? You want your body and your mind to actually protect you first. So there is a mechanism in the system that protects us. Now, when this mechanism is overworking beyond its you know, normal state, or when society has created environments that are complex and that create pressure on the system, then these aspects of the human nervous system get activated as if through reflex mechanisms to lead to anxiety, fear, self-protection from the other, etc., etc. And so therefore, these things are built in within the what we can call the lower parts of the brain, which are more automatic, more uh, already conditioned and already in reflex kind of functioning. That's the amygdala? Yeah, that's the amygdala. The amygdala works like this, even though it's very closely connected to the conscious aspects of the brain. And then you have the upper side of the brain, the new brain, sometimes we used to call it, in frontal you know, lobes with... Uh, 
appreciation of the situation, comparing past, present, and future, anticipation of the future, etc., and also interpretation of events or interpretation of on a factual way or on a way to construct things so that they make sense to us. We can go back to this if if this is of interest. Uh, that actually makes sense out of this and tell the our brain that we are no more in the jungle. Oh. You know, we are no more, you know, at every minute getting exposed to danger and things. So we have the ability to create things and do things. Or they'll tell the we are in a worse jungle than we have ever been before. And therefore we have to manage our situation. So if some parts of the brain take over and they get too overstimulated, then they can imbalance the physiology and create diseases and problems, which are not just mental, but also physical because of the psychosomatic effect. The basic value that we have is we have a brain that can compute all kinds of things from completely different perspectives. There is a fact-checking brain, which is mostly on the right frontal area, there is an interpreter brain, which is mostly on the left frontal, prefrontal area. We have areas that are for reward, like the nucleus accumbens, the septal areas of the, uh, you know, areas of the brain connected to the basal ganglia. We have fear centers. And so we have all of these things. We have also creative centers, centers for hearing, vision, etc., physical activity, etc., sensory activity. So all of these many, many, many areas of the brain, if one area of these areas takes over, such as the amygdala, for example, then the individual becomes enslaved, captured by these values. What we need is an opening up of the brain so that all of the different values are available for the computation of what we need to do at what moment. The more we have a brain that is opened, that is being properly used, the better decision-making we have, and the better even our physiology is maintained and allowed to act in a coherent way. Because after all, we have discovered that there is a psycho, neuro, endocrino, immunological, etc chain in the nervous system. So the brain is not just a place where things have been experienced or in the mind, you know, and thoughts, etc. It's a place where everything is coordinated. And when there is disturbance in the brain activity, it can disturb or the brain become unable to help coordinate the physiology or it can interfere even with different somatic, which means physical aspects of the physiology. And the meditation. So meditation has been shown to open up the reserves of the brain, to allow different parts of the brain to act in a coherent way. And even in advanced uh, structures and studies of brain uh, visualization uh, with uh, advanced techniques, we see that there is blood flow that goes to parts of the brain that are more integrating, that open up different aspects of physiological brain activities, such as coherence between right and left, between front and back, which means we are opening up the physiology of the brain and allowing it to compute in a much more complete way 
what the situation is and be able to deal with it in a more intelligent, between quotation mark, way. Do you find it interesting that, as, as a brain scientist yourself, that perhaps the most modern uh, stress has been called the Black Plague of the 21st century because um, it's all pervasive. Uh, there's no medicine you can take to prevent stress or trauma. There's no medicine you can take to cure it. We mask it and we manage it. But that some mod most modern, ep and how many people did the Black Plague kill because there's nothing. So now we have stress. Do you find it interesting that science is now looking back to something ancient and ancient that has been really discarded you know, by practical people for a very long time, if we want to be honest. Meditation until maybe recently was just sort of, that was just foolishness, it's a waste of time. What is, as a neuro, speaking as a neuroscientist, you know, what, what is your observation? We can say, you know, at one time, all that there was is going back to the self, meditation and all of that. But because of different philosophies clashing and different angles and creating wars and tensions in society because of belief systems and, and different ways of approaching things, it has become more and more, uh, with the past years, more and more uh, empirical and pragmatic in the sense. So empirical meaning based on experimentation and actually trying to see things. Because even in medicine, you had like philosophy, medicine used to be an art, and it became a science. It became a science through experimentations, through proving what works, what doesn't work. And therefore, the scientific method has become the reference to what is to be done and what is to work. Now, unfortunately, the scientific method didn't have a way to deal with the subjective aspects of life. Didn't have a way to deal with the mind at the beginning, didn't have the way to deal at all with consciousness until recently trying to understand what consciousness is. And so you can see that, for example, psychology, and certainly sociology, used to be arts. So people who studied psychology or sociology 50, 60 years ago, they were completely arts, which mean kind of philosophy, different hypotheses about how the mind works, the subconscious, the unconscious, the collective unconscious, young and this and that and the other. And science, it's too much postulation. And so was sticking with the physical, with the physical, with the physical. And that led to an understanding more and more of the physical aspects of life. Until we started to say, but what about the mind? The mind is not outside the realm of the laws of nature. What science does is analyze the laws of nature. How a pen falls when you drop it? Why does it fall in this trajectory and at what speed it does? We have computed the laws of physics, the laws of motion that tell us how an object falls and for what reason. And then we say, where does this gravity come from? What are the forces of gravity? What are the particles that are dealing with that? And so it's all physical, physical. And then we started to refine that actually the mind also obeys laws of nature. So subjectivity and objectivity are our concern. Subjectivity is something we cannot have a hold on because it's a personal experience. Objectivity and objective things are things that we can analyze. The mind and psychology used to be thought out of the realm of objective analysis. 
Now that we know that, in fact, subjective things such as feelings, moods, yeah. moods are also controlled by laws of nature, and that interactions between people are also controlled by laws of nature, that it's not such a wild field of personal thing. But what is a personal thing also can be defined, depending on what the person's predispositions are, even now what the person's genetics are, etc. There will be a kind of behavior that you can manage to understand, that you can follow, that you can analyze. So psychology more and more has become a science rather than just philosophy and analysis. And beyond the mind comes consciousness. Consciousness is again a very abstract field and very personal field. When people hear that word they just sort of, they don't even know what to think. Yeah, what is it? Oh, oh, he regained consciousness or sleeping state of consciousness. Right, there is different levels of consciousness, altered state of consciousness, waking sleep of consciousness, sleep, dream states of consciousness. So we go through different types of awareness in our mind. What is interesting is, out of all that there is, in fact, for a human being, consciousness is the one thing that is there for sure. <laughs> you know, philosophers like Descartes and others said, who at one time were questioning, do we exist in the wet way we exist? And even modern physics, modern scientists tells us that our even particles and atoms, they can be in different places at the same time. We get to elementary particle quantum field theories and unified field theories, and the mind is completely confused. You know, how can two things exist in two different places at the same time, or many places at the same time. One thing can exist in different places at the same time. One thing can be in different states at the same time. And that there is a probability of finding something here and there, that time and space are all relative. So you get to that feeling where the philosophers and thinkers throughout time at one point wondered what is real and what is not real. And then they realized and have said that one thing is real, and that is I am aware, I am consciousness, I have awareness. When we have awareness, we exist. <laughs> so existence starts to depend on being conscious. Without consciousness, what do you know that we exist? If you're sleeping, you don't realize that you exist. Others can tell you you are still there in the bed, but as far as you're concerned, your existence depends on your awareness. So scientists are trying to say today, where does this awareness come from? How does the brain create awareness? And so far we have absolutely really on the mechanical, physical level, we have many theories that not one of them is compelling. Nobody really knows. Absolutely nothing. Someone one time likened it to the, the idea of the brain creating consciousness as an engine creating electricity. Exactly. You know, sort of like that, that fuels it. Is that true? I mean, is that sort of one of those series is sort of, what is it, empirical? I forget what the word is, but it... Yeah, I feel, and you know, I wrote article on that, that is consciousness is actually primary, and it's consciousness that creates the other aspects of appreciation of reality from the consciousness perspective. It's a topic which requires a lot of uh, explanation, but consciousness is today and spirituality is, uh, is today and mental activity 
is today part of the scientific realm of understanding and study because we see that the laws of nature, the dynamics of how things happen on the mental level as well as on the physical level obeys laws and these laws are universal. So of course we have freedom, there is also this component, freedom to decide and act, but even that freedom obeys laws and therefore the field of mental reality and its effects on the physiology is no more a field of philosophy and imagination and postulation and theory. It's a field where either it works or it doesn't work. So you see it as a continuum. I mean, that the, there's, that the mind is just as real, could be seen as just as real, that there's not two different things. Whereas there's your body and then the mind, and that's just completely chaotic, and there's no laws that necessarily nothing predictable, and there's this type of psychology and that type of theory and that, but that you see underlying that, there's, that the mind could be seen as just as driven by laws of nature as the body? Completely. 100%. That means the mind is, the mind and the body are two different aspects of the same consciousness that appears as a matter in a physical way, that appears as mind in a mental way, in a more abstract way. And you can literally say that for every thought, for every decision making, for every feeling, there is an accompanying change and transformation in the physiology. So the physiology reflects the mind, the mind reflects the physiology. They are not two separate things. And is that how chemical, I mean the idea behind, well if you give the body this chemical, this drug, then it will affect, affect the mind? If you, yes, we, you know, we if know If you're this. depressed and you take Prozac, so it, 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 talk about that. If you are depressed, you adjust some chemicals in the brain, and these chemicals can help you feel better. So it was my original uh, desire when I got into all the psychiatry and neurology and brain science to see how we can develop the full potential of the individual. The problem with individual drugs is that they target small things. They can help people but they can also create imbalance in certain areas. So they are very necessary and they can be very helpful in certain conditions, but why not use the actual brain if we have the actual mind, if we have technology of the mind? So there is an approach from the physical level, it's biological, it's good, it's helpful, but there is also the possibility to approach from the level of the mind. And here I want to emphasize that the level of the mind does not necessarily mean the intellect. Although the intellect can be approached, which means talking to people, counseling, explaining things, telling people to behave in this way rather than this way, because when you are in this situation you do this, when you are in that situation do this, it helps to modify the behavior and to create better conditioning and thinking of the mind. But there is something more profound than that, and that is to remove the stresses that are on the nervous system, which means on the mind also, because as we said, body and mind are a continuum. So whatever you have that you call stress is not just simply mental floating around in the air, it's something physical that is a transformation, a modification of how your brain is working. 
So for every stress that we call stress or memory of a negative event in our life, even if we don't remember it consciously, it is still stored there. And that's why we say it's memory, it's memorized. You cannot recall it necessarily, but it is sitting there. What does it mean? It means there is an imprint, there is an actual transformation in your nervous system that modifies the ways the cells, the neurons, the molecules and their relationship with each other, their connection with each other, chemically and electrically, transforms that. So this transformation is what we call stress. So stress is actually imprinted in the nervous system. It's a physical thing which the mind experiences as tension and stress and fear. So to remove that stress, it's not just enough to think about it or calculate it. What you need is to use the inherent ability of the body to readjust itself. When you are tired, you don't try to pull the tiredness out of your muscles by pinching them. You can do a massage, it helps a little bit. But if you're tired, you've had a long day, what you need is rest. When you rest, the body settles down and the body has the ability to recover. You wake up in the morning, if you had a good night's sleep, you feel more fresh. The deeper the rest, the more you can remove fatigue from the body. Stress is simply a fatigue, a kind of tiredness, a kind of abnormal functioning in the physiology. How do we remove that? Same thing, rest. Since the mind and the body are intimately connected, when the mind settles down through a mental process, simple rest of the mind, it means the body is also resting. And the scientific research has shown that the body actually rests. Oxygen consumption reduces, galvanic skin responses changes, hormones change, brain activity changes, and that rest is much, much deeper than that of sleep. And therefore, this is how the body itself corrects itself by removing those stresses that are there that have been preventing the brain, the nervous system, from functioning in a holistic way. So it's a simple way which depends on the nature of the body that is able to heal itself by itself if you give it a chance to do so. Now when you talk, this to me, if I'm just listening at home, this is like so simple to understand, such a relief. But when you start talking about consciousness and, you know, unify all, it. Do I ha does, a, does a person at home have to know, understand all of that to benefit from the meditation? I mean... Do you have to know how, what is the physics of, and the formulas of physics of electricity in order to flip the switch and get light in your house? Thank God, no. Okay. <laughs> you don't need to know how the electricity comes. You don't need to know how it works. You don't need how the bulb works. You just has a technology that flips the, makes the flip happen, and then you get the result. Do you need to know how sleep works so that in the next morning you feel fresher in order for sleep to make you feel fresher? No, you don't know. This problem is our problem. Physics, <laughs> you know, physicists, scientists, biologists, neurologists, 
make this their problem. They want to understand how is it that when I sleep, I wake up and I feel fresh. And if I don't sleep, I get exhausted and I can even die if I have sleep deprivation and my whole system goes, goes wrong. So in the same way as sleep gives you enough rest so you can feel refreshed, this technique is absolutely simple. Even children can do it. You just do it, it gives you rest which is deeper than that of sleep, and you come out of it refreshed. So I have one last question for you, marvelous. For, again, for centuries or longer, the whole notion of meditation being something philosophical or worse, now along comes Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who studies with a teacher and brings transcendental meditation to the world, and even Time Magazine credited Maharishi with the, with the one who sort of brought meditation and the science of meditation. Maharishi taught for 50 years, um, set up this huge organization, but you had an opportunity to spend a lot of time with him in your role as a medical doctor, in your role as a neuroscientist, in your role as a teacher of transcendental meditation, as an author. For just a regular person in the world who never knew him or only would know of Maharishi through what they wrote in the press. What was it like studying and working with Maharishi? It was really wonderful in the sense that Maharishi didn't pretend to be anything special as a startup. <laughs> he really is a simple, natural human being who has had the chance to have a teacher and learn from that teacher all this technology that he so generously and compassionately, I would say, gave to the world and allows us to propagate and offer to, to anyone, individual or society, who want to improve their personal life or their social life. And he used these technologies himself and evolved himself gradually to the full understanding and development of the full potential of the human being. So. It was for me, of course, an amazing experience to be with somebody who has developed their full potential, opened up their full brain, their full possibilities, and who is just teaching day after day, hour after hour, just wanting to give this knowledge to everyone so everyone can benefit from it. And again, this knowledge is not as much intellectual, although Intellect has to be satisfied, heart has to be satisfied, even the senses have to be satisfied. So there is a lot of study about it, theory about it, comparison with modern scientific findings like unified field and consciousness and all of that. All of this is just to help us understand and accept that this aspect is really valid. You know, when we started our discussion, we talked about scientific or non-scientific. I, I produce two values. One is the actual systematic approach and its results physically. There might be a third value, which is important for a scientist, is to understand the mechanism. How is it does it work, you know? How does it fit with our understanding of the world today? And Marshi was a physicist himself. He was trained as a physicist. Uh, in a regular physics, and so he got very interested in, in physics. And so that is why there is a comparison between what physics tell us about the universe today, what physics tell us about where things come from, 
about a field, which is your unified field, that we really don't need to know in order to get the results. But if we want to dive deeper into understanding how is this possible, is it something like magical? Is it something miraculous? No, it's very real. It's very simple. And there are ways to understand by comparing modern physical understanding, the most advanced physics, with the most ancient understanding of what consciousness is and finding that actually ultimate subjectivity, which is going back to completely the inner self and ultimate objectivity, which is studying nature from its most profound basic laws in physics and the most elementary particles and beyond them, to the fields and the unified fields of natural law and finding that they actually shake hands and come out with the same conclusion. So Marshi was also interested in that and I worked with him on these features of comparing modern science with ancient science, ancient Vedic science that he was bringing. Even comparing the Veda which is uh, literature from this ancient science from which this technology comes. This technology comes from thousands of years old practices of inward going inward, not just an invention of, of something. So this Vedic science, which is completely subjective, comes from an inward experience of the dynamics of consciousness within the self. And modern science, which is completely objective, which comes from actually experimentation and proof, but still uses the human mind because it's the mind that actually understands how things work. Einstein used to say, it's very interesting, say, the most unbelievable thing about this universe is that we can understand it. Because he said, how is it possible that I sit there and I can formulate mathematical equations and I can understand how the universe works, even though my senses tell me different things. And so it is my mind that actually understands and fathoms the farthest reaches of the universe and the smallest than the smaller atom and particle of the universe that we can't see or feel even through our senses, but we can fathom through our minds and intellects. And the reason is, Consciousness has that dynamics. So going back to the awareness, analyzing, shows that the same dynamics of consciousness are there in the dynamics of what creates the physical world. So my research in this field, and that's one of the things Marshall really liked, is the comparison between this ancient, completely subjective science with modern understanding of the structure of the body and the physiology and the universe and showing that they actually join each other. And that's why we say the ultimate subjectivity reaches and compares and shakes hands with ultimate objectivity. I hope we're going to be able to continue this as a conversation and go just on that modern science and ancient Vedic science. But I have two questions, one minute each. Maharshi's legacy, how, how will people, how will the world see Maharshi's legacy, do you feel as a, as a scientist and as a teacher, 100 years from now? I see that Maharshi has really simplified what can be a most complex and difficult knowledge of 
the integration of life, the fullness of life, and the development of full human potential and full potential of society. This has been a knowledge that is coming from thousands of years old. Marshi took it and offered it to the world in its completeness, and the results are showing that life can be better. We can have individual and more balanced, happy, prosperous, creative living. We can have society living with less disease or even disease-free, and we can have a world living in peace once the individual understands who they really are and finds that they are that one thing which is everything and which means which is everyone else. And therefore, between us as humans, there are outer differences, but experiencing who we truly are, we find that we are the same, like the sap in a tree, like the roots nourishing the sap, and the sap becoming the flower, becoming the branch, becoming the, the different aspect of the leaves. They are different on the surface, but it's the same sap in the middle. So that is unity and diversity. Marshi will be seen as the one who has created unity and diversity on the experiential level, not just the intellectual understanding, but a direct experience of the reality of who we are. That was beautiful. Was it one minute? <laughs> it was a it was a close to one minute. Um, Maharshi passed this organization. I mean, it's being run by many many people, but you are the leader of the organization. What do you see as your immediate goal for this TM organization? Like, what would you like to see five years from now? Where will things be? I'd like to see everyone in the world coming back to their self in a very innocent, simple way. And we have that technology, so we are eager to offer it to everyone. We are eager to have people come forward, become teachers of this technology, so that everyone can live 200% of life. Now people are rushing out to fulfill their life on the surface level, but then they see themselves spread around and scattered around and football of situation and circumstances. What I'd like to see is every individual anchoring their life and their own self, giving a few minutes for themselves. Let's give a few minutes for ourselves. It deserves it because that is the anchor of our life and that is what will allow us to enjoy all the outer values which we will be able to enjoy more and more and be more and more creative as we dive deep into the self and tap into this infinite reservoir of intelligence and creativity, which is nothing but our own deep being. I learned Transcendental Meditation in 1969. At that time, Maharishi was uh, on the world and so many people heard about him. He was on the front cover of newspapers and magazines and literally millions of young people learned to meditate. Now, there's so many different types of meditation and so many young people doing so many different types of meditation, it's sort of difficult to, like, why should they do transcendental meditation or why should they, why this technique? Um, there's a skepticism among the so-called millennials. There is a, you know, they don't want to join things. What would your message be to, you know, a, a young person who's working in Silicon Valley or um, here in New York or teaching in a school who have a skepticism but an openness? 
There are different ways to get somewhere. You know, you can go uh, walking, swimming, driving, <laughs> using a bicycle, taking an airplane. Ultimately, most of these will get you there. Some a little slower, some much faster, some really much, much faster. And all techniques that deal with manipulation a little bit of the mind, manipulation of the brain, the intellect of the way we breathe or the way we concentrate, the way we focus, use what we can say limited creativity and intelligence because it still remains human limited intelligence. This technique of transcendental meditation uses the intelligence of nature. That's why we say it is natural. And in it, there is no concentration, no contemplation, no manipulation. It's a simple process that uses the natural tendency of the mind to want to have more and more. All we do is instead of going more and more outwards, we turn the inward direction and then it is nature that does it. It is the nature of the mind, it's the nature of the body that takes care of this reality. And when we go back to the infinite intelligence that fathoms the, or creates the entire universe and keeps it in perfect order, then we have a better chance to really achieve the maximum. As soon as we introduce our individuality, we are introducing a little factor of narrow understanding. And that's why we say completely natural, completely in accordance with the laws of nature of the mind, body and consciousness is transcendental meditation. And therefore, this is why its effectiveness is maximum. Besides the fact that it's thousands of years old, has proven itself and its effectiveness throughout centuries and also scientifically documented and very solidly documented. And most of the research that is often presented is research that we have done on transcendental meditation. It is nice to promote meditation, but one has to use the proper technology uh, in order to get the maximum results. And what would some of those results be just in, for, for that young person, you know, trying to make their way in a very confusing world? The first thing is not to be confused because one finds oneself anchored in oneself and therefore one can deal with all kinds of situations and circumstances better. There is an increase in creativity and effectiveness in work, the ability to do things in a short period of time rather than drag them because the mind is busy with stresses and strains and its activity and its intelligence and its creativity reduced because stresses are using part of the nervous system and preventing uh, the full development and full expression of intelligence. Also, it has an effect on health, on happiness, on physiology, on balance, preventing disease, strengthening the immune system. Now, last question. If I were a young person and I wanted to have a better world, I would be rather distraught right now, I'd have to say, a young person wants to make a difference. They want to create a better world for themselves and for their children and their grandchildren. How could something like teaching transcendental meditation allow them to create a better world? Why should they look to that as a profession? Because there's someone in there burning in their heart. They see suffering, they see inequality. It's just even on that level. They see suffering, they see inequality. They see disease and sickness, of even stress-related and a sense of hopelessness. 
Why is this a channel for social transformation? There are many theories of how to do things on the surface, many approaches, many ways they can clash, many belief systems, and differences are always a basis for fear because when there is a duality, when there are two things, these two things, whatever they are, however close they are one to each other, they have the potential to clash. So what we need is not something on the theoretical level. We don't need something on the level of postulation and etc. What we need is something on the experiential level, on the transformation of life itself. And there is what is transcendental meditation. It offers the ability to be in oneself, to be oneself, and be in the sense infinite within, and yet accept the limitations and transformations on the surface. Natural law organizes the whole universe in certain ways, and therefore if we align ourselves with natural law, we can have the transformation on the outer level happen in a very positive and progressive way. To be a teacher of transcendental meditation is something really very profound on both levels. First, the individual development. When one becomes a teacher, one actually oneself puts oneself on the fastest track of evolution and also is able to contribute to help others relax, <laughs> wake up within themselves, be clear in their minds, and therefore spontaneously make better decisions and better choices in life. And on the surface level, all kinds of activities and professions are there. But to be able to give everyone a nourishing power, which allows every individual to be a better individual, to see things in the best possible perspective, is a profession that is in my perception, in my reality, in my vision, the highest possible thing one can do. And that's why personally I have put myself in it and I enjoy being able to offer this to, to whoever wants it. I thank you very, thank very, you. very, very honored to be with you. Thank Wonderful. you very much. Thank you. It's great. Really great. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.